Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome fellow time travellers. It's great to have you with me. Uh, Season two is nearly upon us, uh, but before we set off on our new journey together, I wanted to record a special episode uh, where I pull some of the strands of the the journey around the British archipelago together. Uh, First up though, big thanks to everyone who helps and supports the making of this podcast by signing up to my Patreon site. That one's full of history and comment, facts and philosophy. I film it here at my home in Stirling, uh, with the occasional appearance of my trusty wolfhounds, Gracie and Jessie. To give your support and to get access to all of those exclusive goodies, simply go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver, and sign up. Please do that. Right, now it's time to start drawing some of the strands of the history of these British Isles together. Cue the music. What's it all about? Why are we here? What's it for? How long have I got? How will this end? In this episode, we're celebrating the incomers and blow-ins. The folk who have come to these islands and helped weave a rich tapestry. Before Homo sapiens arrived in the world, our ancient ancestors walked here a million years ago. Hunters, farmers and a seafaring people all made it their home. Sacred places, formidable fortresses and landscapes of breathtaking beauty. A set of islands that have had an influence on the whole world. A place with a rich, complicated and compelling history. A place I love. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver. And this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. To kick off this episode about the series, I'd like to ask a very simple question. Your podcast has taken us across a million years of history. On a practical level... How do you even start trying to pull a story like that together? It's a good question. I think I have to I think I just have to honestly say that this is the the hundred places here that we've that we've visited. It, it's eclectic and personal. And some of the places that I've picked are obvious. I suppose Westminster Abbey or Stonehenge or uh, 
possibly even the, you know, the, the, the Scottish Parliament building in Edinburgh might be places that a large cross-section would point to. But then there are things, other things, the Fortingall Yew, which is a tree in, in Glen Lyon in Scotland. There are various little locations that I've, that I've highlighted that w- most people will never have heard of and, and certainly don't care about. And so when you say, how do I go about pulling this together? I just know that these are the places that have registered most strongly with me. And they make sense to me. You said quite rightly, we start a million years ago, but then there's a big leap. After a million years ago, we come forward across a vast abyss of unknown time, you know, into periods that are relatively recent in terms of there being tens of thousands of years ago rather than a million. But they tell a story to me, which is basically, I wanted to get across that my love of the archipelago has come out of my realising how long people of one sort or another have sought to cling on to these few patches of dry land. And it has made a nonsense, a useful, happy nonsense for me, out of notions like England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, those names and senses of identity that we've applied are only ours. And in the scheme of things, set against a million years of history, they're an incredibly thin veneer. It's like butter scraped extremely thin across a lot of toast. There's no depth to to those identities when you set it in, in the context of how long humankind of one sort or another has been here. And it's possibly just my wiring. That pleases me and reassures me because I think for all that we're worrying about, and people have legitimate worries and anxieties and concerns about the state of the nation, but I'm just drawn back to that idea of the ring that King Solomon was supposed to have had made for him, which had on it, this too shall pass. You know, we're so preoccupied with our travails and our worries, rightly so, but come back in a hundred years or a thousand years, and we'll all be gone. And it'll all be different anxieties and worries and preoccupations. A lot of the time it's like a couple of fleas arguing about who owns the horse they're living on. We're so insignificant against the great depth of the story of the British archipelago, and I I love that. It's fascinating that over time so much history and knowledge gets lost. Like, for example, we don't even know what a major monument like Stonehenge was actually called. Yeah, I've, I've asked myself and others over and over again, at what point, which generation of the descendants of the people that either built Stonehenge, modified Stonehenge, or visited Stonehenge for whatever reason, eventually people stopped using it. You know, it became like a, a cathedral that nobody bothered to go and worship in or bury their dead nearby. It just was abandoned at, at some point. But if we were to stop using Westminster Abbey tomorrow, aliens from outer space would land and might point at the building and say, what was that? And we could tell them, well, it's Westminster Abbey, it's a church. We used to have all sorts of ceremonies in there and people would go and worship the religion called Christianity. And, you know, we could tell them what it was about. 
And, and I think, how many generations would have to pass before the aliens land and point at Westminster Abbey and nobody's got any idea what it was for? That interests me. So, so you replace Westminster Abbey with Stonehenge. How long passed? How many generations after the last ceremony at Stonehenge did the knowledge of what it was go? That fascinates me. You know, there must have been a generation that vaguely just remembered kind of what Stonehenge had been for, and then they had their children, and by the time the parents were gone and someone asked the children, they just looked at Stonehenge and said, beats me. <laughs> just a pile of old stones. The idea of Britain comes and goes. At the moment, there's quite a lot of nationalist sentiment in the archipelago, and some people in Wales want independence for Wales, and some people in Scotland want independence for Scotland. And in seeking to legitimise that desire, there's often an implication that Wales is older, that Scotland is, is older than the United Kingdom, which they are, but they're not older than Britain. You know, when the Romans splashed ashore here 2,000 years ago and asked the locals what the place was called, they would already have had an understanding of, of the language or languages that were spoken on the archipelago because before they conquered, the Romans would have been coming here, scoping the joint, <laughs> you know, and, and assessing it. They would have been trading with and had had relationships with some people here. But at some point they must have said, what do you call this place? And the answer was presumably a word that sounded a bit like Britain. It might have been Pritain with a P or Pritain. And then when the Romans came in, you know, in earnest and established a province here, they called it Britannia. That was their attempt at, at using the name that the locals called the place. So Britain's an old idea. Britain is older than England, Scotland, Wales. It's older than that. You know, so underneath calls for separation and, and nationalism, there is the undeniable fact that Britain is the original idea. Or it's not even the original idea, it's just an older idea. Other peoples have spoken other languages here. When the Ice Age came to an end, you know, 12,000 years ago, when it became possible for people to get back here, and, and at that time they would just have walked, because the sea levels were lower. So you'd have walked in from what we consider to be like northern France or, or the low countries. You'd just have walked across land into what was then just a peninsula. And those, those people had brought in languages that in one form or another have their roots back in the Indian subcontinent or there or thereabouts. You know, the Indo-European languages they came in with languages that had roots in Sanskrit and, and other ancient tongues. And by the time people were, were schlepping into the peninsula that would subsequently become the, the British archipelago, the language that they spoke gave birth in due course to Irish, Gaelic, Scots, Gaelic, Brythonic, Cornish. All of those languages that come before English that come before the Latin of the Romans were fruit from the same tree that bore Sanskrit and other, other languages from far, far away. 
And that's an endless fascination to me. You know, that ideas like English, they're interlopers. And the Scots, the Scotty, they were an, an Irish tribe. Those were Irish pe- or people from the island that we know as Ireland. And in the period after the Romans, they established a kingdom that straddled the Irish Sea. It was a seagoing kingdom based around command of the water as much as command of the land. And it spread from northeastern Ireland across to western Scotland, western Britain. They were even in parts of North Wales. And they were the Scotty. And the Romans knew them. The Romans encountered them, had trouble with them. Even while the Romans were still here, you know, they would turn their backs on bits of western northern Britain for 10 minutes. And the next time they looked, there were Irish people there who were Scotty. So Scotland has its roots in something that comes from elsewhere as well. Welsh is an Anglo-Saxon word. The Romans were here for four or five hundred years and then when things got too difficult for them and they really needed to pull back onto the continent because they had trouble at home and in the the vacuum that they left behind, Germanic peoples, Angles and Saxons came across. Initially they were probably invited by some of the post-Roman people because they were being invaded by Picts and Caledonians from from the other side of Hadrian's Wall. And because they couldn't get the Romans to help them defend themselves, they looked to Angles and Saxons. And so the Angles and Saxons came in and settled and eventually they decided that they were going to take the place for themselves. And they established kingdoms like Dera and Bernicia up in what we know as Northumberland. And they began pushing the British the indigenous population further and further west. And they end up in like Cornwall and Wales and indeed in, in, in Scotland and, and in the north. And they continued to speak those older languages, Welsh, Cornish, Scots, Gaelic, Brythonic. And the Anglo-Saxons called those people Welash, which is to say not us, foreigners. The Welsh called themselves Cymru, which means us, or the community, or the people. So the Welsh are Cymru, but we call them Welsh. And now the Welsh call themselves Welsh, but Welsh means not Anglo-Saxon. When you start looking into all of that, modern preoccupations with national identity begin to look as superficial as dyeing your hair pink. Or, or, or wearing different clothes. It's just brief and temporary. And that, I find that fascinating. That complexity of the people here extends to the land too. I mean, there are at least 6,000 plus islands here. Yeah, I've seen that figure, yeah. And about 136 to 200 are inhabited. Yeah, and another another lovely thing I've experienced about the amount of time and the opportunities I've had to, to really travel around and within the archipelago is, is, is that, it's how many places it actually adds up to. When you're on the ground, you don't notice when you cross the border from England into Scotland. You can't really tell. If, if, there, if it wasn't for road signs, you don't f- realise you've crossed from England into Wales. But what you notice are the changes that happen mile by mile. 
the variation between or the differences between Cumbria and Cornwall or between Kent and Northumberland or between people who live in the borders of Scotland and people who live in the far northwest or in Orkney or in the Outer Hebrides, you wouldn't say they were all the same. You know, to say the Scottish people, what does that even mean? Because we're really what we've always been to some extent, which is a patchwork of tribes. Really, the differences between peoples is to be experienced just mile by mile. You hear accents change, house styles change. Obviously, that's becoming less and less now. We're, we're increasingly a homogenised population. The variety between towns and villages is being blurred. But you still can tell the difference between people from Carlisle and people from Cardiff or people from Carlisle and people from Dumfries, which is, you know, I grew up in Dumfries, which is in southwest Scotland. It's only 20-odd miles from Carlisle, which is in England. But the difference in the accents is, is like a splash of cold water in the face. And you think, how did those sustain? You think, why haven't those accents become the same? Why haven't they blurred into one? But they don't. Something sustains and have remained distinct despite being within 20 miles, 20 odd miles of one another for centuries. It depends on your resolution, doesn't it? If you, if you look at a newspaper page or an old fashioned newspaper page and you look at a, a, a black and white photograph and it'd be someone's face, but if you took a magnifying glass to it, it became a pattern of dots to the point where you, you couldn't see what you were looking at. It just became, it just became dots. So it's how close you are. You know, the closer you get to the ground, you see something very different than when you pull out to a height of 50 miles. Britain only looks like Britain from 50 miles up. When you're on the ground, it's made up of little places, lots and lots of little dots. I've always felt that this podcast is a very personal journey for you. Do you think it's that which has got all these hundred places to gel? I would like, I mean, not to get too sentimental, I suppose, but I would like to think it's held together by love of place. You know, I, I, I have the same strong affection for places north, south, east and west scattered all over the archipelago. You know, from, from Orkney in the north, you know, the, the deep affection that I feel for, you know, places like ne Nessa Brodgar, the Stones of Stennis, the town of Kirkwall, St Magnus Cathedral in Kirkwall. I feel just as intensely as I feel about the Penley lifeboat story and the boathouse there that's the memorial to truly the greatest eight men I have ever seen. It, it, all of it reaches to the same place in my affections, whether it be in the far north of Scotland or the southwest of England or the southeast of England or the far west of Wales or over in Ireland. You know, the cage of fields, walls that were built by a population that were looking after cattle on a huge scale, and they built themselves all sorts of enclosures that meant they could contain the animals and separate them, calves from bulls and all the rest of it. And the way I feel about cage of fields is just as intense. And, and that's what has, for me, blurred all of the distinctions between the modern nation states. I love the feeling that I have that the British archipelago is one place. 
and that depending on what resolution you use, from the micro to the macro, from the local to the national, it depends what resolution you're using. But really, the closer I get to the micro, the more intense I feel about the, the place in question. As well as the places in the series, you've also singled out objects and people too, like the Amesbury Archer. Yes, you know, and again, he's a good example because what did we learn about the Amesbury Archer was that he wasn't from here. You know, you, you acquire in your childhood the elements, the atoms of the food that you eat and the water that you drink, and it, it becomes part of your tooth enamel apart from anything else. And so by analysis of a person's tooth enamel, you can find out where they had their formative years, where they had their childhood, where they grew up. And in the case of the Amesbury Archer, he came from a thousand miles away, south of the Pyrenees. And for whatever reason, in his adulthood, he was motivated to walk. Let's imagine that he walked from wherever was his place of birth and growing up. And then he got himself across the English Channel and, and made for... Stonehenge, and as you rightly point out, we will never know what he called Stonehenge, the name that he understood for that circle of stones, but he made a considerable effort to get there, so that whatever it was called, it it must have been important to him, important enough to make that pilgrimage, and he lived out the rest of his life there, and what he brought was some of the oldest gold jewellery that we know about in the whole of Britain. So he was he was a metal worker. Either he knew how to work metal or he knew people who did. And he brought that technology with him. And and you know and he's called Amesbury Archer because when he died and was buried he, amongst other things and he was it was a very rich burial. He went in with golden jewellery and uh, some of the tools that are used for working metal, lots of beakers, pottery jugs for, for holding beer or or, or similar but also a, a, a sheaf of arrows, a quiver of arrows went into the ground with him. And, and wrist guards, the things that an archer wears on his wrist to protect his forearm from the rebound of the string as it snaps back on the, from the bow. Um, Stonehenge was being built for a thousand years. It was being, you, you know, being modified. But, you know, you're talking about a place that goes back 5,000 years and, and he, he, was an, he was an incomer then. That is definitely part of the story of this place. It's been a destination for a long, long time. And and until the the possibility of crossing the Atlantic, which is only the stuff of, well, you know, the Vikings crossed the Atlantic, but island hopping from Scandinavia, Iceland, Greenland, and got themselves to North America. But broadly speaking, it wasn't until the 15th century Christopher Columbus, 1492 and all that, that people got across the Atlantic. So up until that point, and for the longest time, the British archipelago, or let's say the west of Ireland, was the end of the line. As far as you could go, if you've come 9,000 miles from east to west, when you look out at the Atlantic Ocean from the west of Ireland, up until relatively recently, that was as far as you were going. You know, so the British archipelago was like High Barnet on the northern line, you know, on the tube map. You're not going any further than that. And maybe that had something to do with it. You know, it was here and no further. This is it. <laughs> so you either put your roots down there or you turned around and started walking home again to wherever you'd come from. And and I, I don't know that I don't know if it, that has had a has had an effect on the way that this place has developed. 
the fact that there was nowhere else to go when he got here, except back again. Do you think it's the depth and richness of history that moulds the people here in such a particular way? Yeah. I mean, obviously things are moving much faster now in the modern era. You know, we've still, there's, obviously there's migration and immigration going on at the moment. And that, that will have an, a, a, an altogether unprecedented and new effect on this archipelago. We've yet to learn how that story ends or how that story develops. But my preoccupation has never been with the present. I look back. That's just in my nature, and I've always, you know, I studied archaeology at university, and you know, you might say that even even the history books didn't go back far enough for me. So I opted for archaeology because archaeology promised the possibility of looking further back at what people were doing and why. I mean, I'm I'm already thinking about the places that that mean the most to me because inevitably people end up asking, but yeah, but what's your favourite? And I do genuinely, I give different answers to that question depending on what mood I'm in. Depends what I'm thinking about when someone asks me. But I definitely, for example, I quite often think about the Fortingall yew, which is a yew tree, and it grows at one end of a glen in central Scotland called Glen Lion. And yew trees are are amongst the species of tree which are very long-lived. There's baobab trees all over Africa that are two and three thousand years old. There's bristlecone pines and sequoias, the giant redwoods in the high Sierra of California and so on, that are thousands of years old. Well, the yew tree is similarly long-lived and yew trees grow in Britain. And yew trees have this remarkable ability to regenerate. You know, so if you cut a yew tree right down to ground level, it's able to grow back just from the roots. I mean, all trees can do that up to a point, but yew trees are particularly resilient, which is why yew trees became associated with the Christian faith. You quite often get a yew tree in a churchyard because it's symbolic of the way that Jesus Christ died, then came back to life. And the yew tree's innate ability to do the same thing meant that people associated the yew tree with Christianity. But the Fortingall yew, people had always accepted that it was at least two to three thousand years old. But some dendrochronologists have allowed for the possibility that the Fortingall U is nine thousand years old. If that's true, that would make the Fortingall U the oldest living thing in Europe. Which means that everything, right from, you're talking about the hunter-gatherers who were repopulating the place after the Ice Age, whether they noticed it or not, because it would have been quite a young tree then, but nonetheless it was there and growing. And it's been there ever since, potentially. So that there's the possibility that all the history we care about, everything, right up through the you know Industrial Revolution, Enlightenment, First World War, Second World War, where we are now, has all happened, metaphorically speaking, in the shadow of the Fortingall U. There's a folk myth that Pontius Pilate grew up in the shadow of Fortingall U because his father was a Roman soldier who was posted into that vicinity. And there's a persistent story that Pontius Pilate grew up in Fortingall and would have known the Fortingall U. And the tree grows in, in, the, in Glen Lyon. And Glen Lyon seems to have been respected by the ancestors. While they built stone circles and cut henges elsewhere, they didn't do that in Glen Lyon. It looks as though 
they respected Glen Lyon as somewhere too special to touch. I've often imagined it might have been because of the presence of the Fortingall U. Because what you might be looking at there in terms of ancient populations is something that they knew had always been there, was older than any of them. And it, its presence may have conferred upon Glen Lyon a sacred status that meant that you, you could go there, but you couldn't dig holes. You couldn't change it. You couldn't modify the landscape in the way that they had begun to modify the landscape elsewhere. I find that absolutely exceptional. And the ancient folklore, the sort of Iron Age, what some people call Celtic folklore, says that the Glen was home to the creator goddess. Not a creator goddess, but the creator goddess. A mother figure, a feminine creator of everything. The name is Kaliach, which means old woman in the old languages like Gaelic. And, you know, nearby is Shehalian, another of the places that we visited in the love letter where Neville Maskelyne calculated the mass of the planet for the first time. But on, on Shehalian, which is a name that means something like the hill of the constant storm. I mean, how evocative is that? The hill of the never-ending storm. And the, and the legend had it that the Kaliach, the old woman, rode the winds of winter there. That was where she spent the winter time. And, you know, Christianity comes to Glen Lyon eventually. St. Athovnan, he brought Christianity into that part of the world. But by the time he was bringing Christianity into Glen Lyon, the Fortingall U might have been 5,000, 6,000 years old. Which is breathtaking. And elsewhere in Glen Lyon, there's a, a little stone structure that's kind of maintained. It's, it's not the original, but it's a structure called the Tina Kaliach, which means the old woman's home. And believe it or believe it not, you'd never find it. You might go looking for it, but unless a local takes you, you just won't find it because it's, it's only a little thing. And every May, a group of smooth pebbles are brought out from inside Tina Kaliach, the old woman's home, and they're set up around the house. And they stay out until Sowin, at Halloween, the first day of November, which marks the first day of winter, and then the stones are put back inside. Now, the stones represent the Kaliach, the Bodach, which is the old man, which is her husband, and their children. They stay out from May, and then they go back inside in November. And this is regarded as one of the oldest pre-Christian rituals still performed anywhere in the world. And it happens in Glen Lyon. And so the idea that that place around the Fortingall U has mattered, been revered, and has been the source and the location of all sorts of, well, what is to us, strangeness for the longest time is just endlessly fascinating to me. And that's just one place in our landscape. There are so many other places that you can go to. St Nectan's Glen, you know, down in Cornwall which is a waterfall, which is a natural feature. And it was home for a while to St. Necton, who was another, you know, sort of Christian pilgrim. But people go there and always have to build little piles of stones that they call fairy towers, little flat pebbles, and they pile them up from largest to smallest. And they leave them there in the glen as mementos to show that they have visited. And that's a, that's a practice that's been going on from a time beyond the reach of memory. And so there are all these nooks and crannies up and down the length of the archipelago that remember 
you might say our species has, has come and gone and as people have believed and trusted different things and the footprints and the and the traces of all of that are still there. And I, I don't know how you can know any of these things and not love the place. On a practical level, how do you like to approach these places? Is it with stout walking boots? Oh gosh, over the years, Paul. Over the years, I mean, I've visited all of these places under different circumstances. A lot of it, I freely admit, was because I, was, I happened to be making a lot of television and writing a lot of books which necessitated my visiting these places. And I've said before, you know, I, I was taken to a lot of these places by the magic carpet of television. I wouldn't have known about them. You know, St Necton's Glen that I've just mentioned, I'd never have known about that. I went there because I was making a television series called Britain's Sacred Wonders. And we visited places like Glastonbury Tor and... You know, we, we visited all sorts of places that had been sacred and had mattered to people for thousands of years. St Necton's Glen was one. I like walking. And that's my preferred mode of transport. You know, so I like walking in and out of these places. You know, I like to experience these places on foot. Not least, and not only because, well, plainly that is how our ancestors would have experienced them. The first people that came here came on foot. We visited, you know, uh, you know, Goldcliff in, in South Wales, where, the, where to this day, when the tide is right, ancient footprints are exposed there. And Haysborough, the location that starts the love letter to the British Isles, footprints that were made in soft silt 950,000 years ago by the banks of what was then the course of the Thames, even though it was coming out in Norfolk, not coming out into the sea where it does now, the Thames took a different route a million years ago. And people of a, an ancestor species called Homo antecessor, which is pioneer man, pioneer woman, a little family left footprints in the mud that were preserved and then briefly exposed again as the soft footprints in mud that they had always been. And they were photographed and now they're gone. You know, so footprints are how this story starts. And, and I enjoy getting to these places as far as possible on foot. Lindisfarne, you know, you can walk to Lindisfarne when the tide is right. It's a tidal island and when the tide's out you can walk across the soft sand, taking care not to get caught out by the tide. Uh, but the best way to get to Lindisfarne is to walk to take the pilgrim's path, so-called, across the sands and get there that way. And that way you experience Lindisfarne the way it's been experienced for the longest time. And do you experience these places standing there with the history swirling around your head? Yeah, yeah, and I'm not, you know, I, in some ways I like the fact I'm not a, I'm not a specialist. I'm an archaeologist, I can claim that. I've got a bit of rolled up cardboard somewhere that says I've got a degree in archaeology, but I just enjoy these places as, I would say, an excited child. That's what they make me feel like. They give me a thrill, these places. I like being a butterfly. I like that I know a little bit about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of places. Just enough. 
There's a family photo of you as a young boy at the Culloden battlefield, standing next to the Clan Cameron grave marker. Do you think history has seeped into you over the years? Yeah, I do. It's difficult, isn't it? It's, I mean, hindsight's a fantastic thing. You know, you look, you look back and you tell yourself all sorts of nonsense about why you think what you think. It's very hard to remember. It's impossible to remember what I actually thought when I was... I think in that photograph, I'm probably about 12-ish. And I have no record. I don't know what how my mind worked when I was 12. I can't remember that. But I know that my dad wanted me to have a photograph taken beside that stone because my mum... My dad died last year, but... But it was my dad that took me there then. He, he took me to Culloden Battlefield more than once. But my mum, who's, who's still alive, her maiden name is uh, Norma Agnes Cameron Neal. On her dad's side, well, his name was Neil, which is a clan name, and it's why I'm called Neil, because it was my mum's maiden name. But she was also descended from Cameron stock. And the Camerons famously, Cameron of Lochiel, the gentle Lochiel, was the first clan chief to promise Bonnie Prince Charlie that his clansmen would fight for Charlie's cause, his doomed cause during the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745-1746. Being connected to the Cameron clan was part of my mum's understanding of who she was. So that's why my dad got me to take my photograph beside that that, that, that stone on, Cl- on Culloden Battlefield. And I, I can only imagine that, that from that age and younger, I was aware of my family being connected to the past it sounds like a stupid thing to say. Everybody's connected to the past. That's why we're here. But, you know, and I did, I learned very early on that, that both of my grandfathers had been in the First World War. And I still think to this day that the First World War is the single most significant disaster that has befallen our species. The changes wrought to society and the world by the events of 1914 to 1918, I, I think, are the, are the most significant and the most telling. And it meant that when we studied the First World War at school, I knew that my grandfathers had been there and had survived and that both had been wounded to the extent that if they had been wounded any worse than they were, I might not have existed because both were in the First World War before they had the chance to make the people who subsequently made me. So yes, I've always been, I've certainly always been interested in history and much more, I mean, latterly, really, you know, as an archaeologist and whatever, it has occurred to me that I must have within my descendants Neolithic farmers, Mesolithic hunters. I am descended from people who, who lived those lives thousands of years ago. I might be descended from people who saw the Romans arrive. All of it, all of us are the same. We're all, we are, if you go back through the generations, we're all connected. There's a fantastic quote from an American biologist called Edward Osborne Wilson, and he said, The real problem of humanity is the following. We have Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions and godlike technology. Our species is like 200,000 years old. And for 99% of that time, we lived as hunters. And then 10,000 years ago, somebody started domesticating plants and animals. And after that, some of us became farmers. And then two or three centuries of industrial revolution. And only in the last 20 years have we had internet and smartphones and social media. And that's the godlike technology that that E.O. Wilson's referring to. But the fact of the matter is, we are all still running Hunter software. Our brains run on Hunter software. 
physiologically, cognitively, we're the same animal that we were 200,000 years ago. And we're trying to cope with all this. We're trying to adapt to all of this. You know, we live in what Brett Weinstein and Heather Haying have described as hyper-novelty. The world is changing faster and faster. And we don't have the physiological, far less the cognitive grunt to keep up. And that's, that's why so many people are struggling. Because we haven't caught up with the rate of change. And we may never catch up with the rate of change. And I too, like everyone else, feel some of that anxiety. And I get reassurance looking back at the past and looking at how people used to live, the things that mattered to them. Ultimately, they asked the same questions that we still ask. What's it all about? Why are we here? What's it for? How long have I got? You know, how will this end? Evidently, people were asking that thousands of years ago, and, and I find it interesting at least to contemplate the answers that they came up with for themselves. Answers that helped them in their worlds. There's no reason to discount the possibility that those answers might help us in our time. And some of it starts with paying attention to places that mattered in the past. I think that sums up one of the underlying currents of this series. The way you show how the past is a reassuring balm for the present. I hope so. I mean, I've had enough, I've, enough people have written to me. So I know that it's not just me. <laughs> I know there's lots of people that get the same comfort from, from contemplating places that have mattered and that still matter. OK, next week it's your turn to have a say on this series or on any of the subjects that it has thrown up. Feel free to ask anything, bring up any topic. Uh, it feels appropriate that you all should get a chance to help wrap up the series too. We've already had lots of fascinating questions, so please keep them coming and I will fit in, get to and answer as many as possible next week. Here's the email. neiloliverpodcast at gmail.com and the Neil Oliver podcast bit at the front is all one word, all lowercase. See you next week. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. Uh, there's my YouTube channel, which is Neil Oliver Channel. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music's by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And a special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.